murder, divorce, drugs. Our courts are full of stories, scary, sad, and hilarious. Most are tales stranger than fiction. These are true law stories, brought to you by VideoCaseStory.com, the ultimate resource for customer and client video stories. Welcome to True Law Stories. I'm Garlic here, and today I've got an amazing, amazing, amazing guest with probably more experience on itself than our past three interviewees combined. And that's saying a lot because we've had some amazing interviewees. It's not saying that about our past interviewees, but Jim Brosnahan has 60 years of trial experience. Not a, 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 he's not 60 years old. He has 60 years of trial experience. So I'm guessing he started trials when you're five, Jim. I, I knew about as much as when I was five when I started because I, I had no idea how to try a case. <laughs> he was named in 2006 one of the most influential trial lawyers by National Law Journal. 1996, he was inducted into the State uh, State Bar of California's Trial Lawyers Hall of Fame. 2001 Trial Lawyer of the Year. Tried over 150 civil and criminal jury cases across the board, including the Supreme Court. We're going to talk today about some of those cases, his first case, and one of the, the vice president that called him that San Francisco lawyer. But Jim Brosnahan, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And don't forget, this is brought to you by VideoCaseStory.com. One of the best ways to make sure your law firm is going for 60 years is through your client stories. VideoCaseStory.com will help collect the stories of any type of business, craft them, and deliver them. Uh, you know, we'll get into these amazing stories, but wow, I, I don't even know where to start. So let's start at the beginning. Uh, what, how, how did you, just, you, you were bedridden as a child and then played three sports. Tell me a little bit about that and then how that led you into becoming an attorney. Well, uh, I mean, the temptation is to feel that I should feel really bad about it, but I had nothing to compare it with. You know, I, I had a misdiagnosis uh, of a rheumatic fever, and the doctor thought I should stay in bed until it clarified itself. And so I was in bed from the age of three to almost six, almost three years. And, uh, you know, I'd sit there. My dad would come home from work and talk to me about the outside world. But as I say, I... I had nothing to compare it with. And um, so finally we got a new doctor. And my dad uh, got the money together to do that. And uh, the new doctor said, you know, kids get worse or they get better. And let them out of bed. And that was it. I started school, but I, I couldn't read. Um, and so I had uh, some difficulties. But when I got to high school, to keep this brief, I fell into sports. And I played three sports. And just sat in class a little bit, waiting for practice to begin, and uh, did a lot of things in the sports. We had very good teams at a school called St. Sebastian's in Massachusetts. And um, I had a tryout with the Red Sox, and I got a basketball scholarship to Boston College and went to BC and started to study. And I found that I had a brain. It was uh, a wonderful thing. And I got to reading books, uh, the more the better, and I've been doing that the rest of my life. Then I went to the Harvard Law School and uh, met my wife, who was a judge for 40 years. And uh, we came out west and eventually got to uh, 
San Francisco, which is my home uh, now, and after being in Phoenix for three years as a federal prosecutor. So I, I prosecuted and I defended criminal cases. I did, I did both. Fantastic. And, and wow. I mean, that's amazing. When was the point you decided that you wanted to become an attorney? My dad and I were watching TV. And it was something called the Army McCarthy hearings. And Senator McCarthy was a despot. He was a terrible man. And he accused everybody of being a communist and disgraced them. And a lot of people lost their jobs and all that. And finally, as we were watching, he attacked a young lawyer uh, in an office in Boston. And a man named Welch defended his young lawyer, and he said to McCarthy, he faced him down on national television, and he said, have you no shame? And that, along with other things, like Edward R. Murrow, a reporter, turned the country around on McCarthy. McCarthy never quite recovered from that, and I thought, wow, I mean, he confronted a bad guy, and that sounds like it could be fun. Uh, so then I did that, in my opinion, at least for 60 years. Fantastic. And, you know, I, I mean, you, you prosecuted Casper Weinberger. Um, you, you've done a lot, but, you know, I want to get into those. But tell me about your, do you remember your first case? Well, it's hard to forget. Um, I was hired as an assistant U.S. attorney in Phoenix as the federal prosecutor. And I went in the office on April the 10th never having tried a case. And the boss came over and said, there's a first-degree murder case on Monday. Will you try it? Well, I've been thinking about being a trial lawyer for about three and a half years, four years, really. And so I said, yes. I had no idea how to try a case. And uh, on Monday, in fact, I announced ready, and Judge Wallenberg was visiting from San Francisco, and I tried a first-degree murder case. We got two convictions. But the point, maybe for your audience, was on Wednesday of that one week that I had to prepare, I, I had to decide whether we should ask for the death penalty. Later, uh, the Department of Justice took that over and all that, but I had to decide whether to ask for it. Well, I had always opposed it in law school, and these were teenage. They were 17, 18 years old, terrible murder, stabbing murder on the Pima Reservation south of Phoenix. And I, I just didn't want to ask for the death penalty, and I didn't, I didn't ask for the death penalty. But my point is the power I had been given without any training uh, without any real preparation, I had uh, had a couple of legal jobs, but nothing that prepared me for it. And uh, when we won it, of course, I had delusions of adequacy. I thought, oh, well, you know, <laughs> gee, I'm, I'm, I'm a born star here. And uh, But that was my first trial. And then, also for your audience, in those days, we tried a lot of cases. Uh, and I was tried, tried some other, a couple of other murder cases. Uh, one sad case off the Navajo Reservation, a 14-year-old girl was murdered by a hitchhiker that 
wandered off the street and went into the tent and, and killed her. Uh, it was a terrible case. Uh, and manslaughter and civil fraud cases, uh, criminal fraud cases and all that. So there was an atmosphere in those days that trial lawyers could try any kind of case. And the specialization was not as complete as it is sometimes today in, in 2022, 2021, 22. And, you know, when it comes to that specialization, do you think it's, it's a benefit now to... Well, it, yeah, lawyers are formed by their clients. They have to be. And clients, because of the complexity of cases... Clients have insisted on specialization, and they've gotten it. And it's not a bad thing. It, if, if you have specialized in securities law, if you have specialized in intellectual property or family law or criminal law, for that matter, then you, you have a fund of knowledge uh, about it. The, the contrary view, which was more widely held when I started, was if you can try one case, you can try any. Every case has witnesses, they have some law, uh, has some arguments to the judge, how to talk to the jury. And uh, so I was very fortunate, I think, starting in the trial practice when I did. It was very, just listening to me for 20 minutes will, will tell you how lucky I have been because I wanted to do this. I always loved it from the first moment. Even as nervous as I was picking the jury in Phoenix in a first-degree murder case, I loved it. I just thought, this is fantastic. And that lasted all the way through. Was there ever a time, I mean, did, did those nerves go away completely? Or were you, are you still nervous? Were you still nervous no, to and, trial? You know, what's interesting is how many times I get asked by students who I've taught and by people at lectures that I've given, that kind of thing. The question usually is, very often it is, when did you stop being nervous? I said, never. I, I never stopped being nervous. In fact, if I had stopped being nervous, I probably shouldn't be trying that case because I should, I should be nervous. But uh, you learn... Techniques, take a deep breath, start slowly when you're talking to the jury, let it build up. And uh, I've been lucky in one way, and that is once that case starts, once we're in the courtroom, the nerves tend to go away because I have to be ready. I, I don't have any time to think about nerves. I have to be, I have to be ready. And uh, so I've been uh, gotten used to that the nerves thing. Oh, and I mean, you've had some crazy cases over the years, obviously. You had, I mean, you tried cases with where uh, attorneys were murdered in Northern Ireland. Tell me a little bit about yeah, that. I did, I did. And I, Brosnahan is an Irish name. I've been to Brosna, which is a very small town in Southern Ireland. It has 40 houses when I was there in the 70s. There were 40 houses and nine pubs. I'm sorry to repeat the, the liquor slur on the Irish people because uh, I don't, you know, I don't, uh, I, I've known a lot of very sober Irish people. But it's a very small town, and 
uh, it, during the Troubles uh, in Northern Ireland, lasted 25 years, I actually investigated three murder cases, one for a client. And I went over during the Troubles and uh, went to the Mays prison, uh, uh, examined witnesses, uh, and got to know what it was like in a war zone. And it's very, very scary. But I also got to see and experience what British colonialism must have been like for the Brosnahans and the Larkins in my Irish family, uh, what it must have been like, the prejudice, the bias. Um, there's still a little bit around the edges, um, and uh, I could tell you stories about things that people said to me when I was over there. But on the two, uh, the two lawyers, uh, 10 years apart, they were murdered because of who they represented. They both represented uh, people in civil and criminal cases, and they had a lot of success. And the police department, the Royal Ulster Constabulary was corrupt. And when I say corrupt, I don't mean it in some slight way of money or something of that kind. I mean, they were, some of them, some of them were trying to do their job, but some of them were cooperating with uh, murder squads. And these two, uh, one was sitting having dinner with his family, and two men appeared, and they had guns, and they killed him in front of his family. We found a witness, and the witness had given these two men the guns. He knew who they were, and he gave us the names. It sounds unbelievable, but he was seeking protection. He thought he would be killed. I came back to San Francisco and wrote the Attorney General of England. I said, we have the names of the murderers. We have a witness who can testify. Didn't hear anything for four months. Finally, a letter came from an underling which said, uh, wrong department, we don't handle that. That's all handled in Ireland. I wrote to Ireland, never heard back. The witness walked out of his house walked down the stairs, and was shot and killed. The other lawyer, uh, and I just, I was motivated by the idea, you don't kill the lawyers, okay? Amidst all the 3,600 that died in the Troubles, uh, all of them, I, I think, should be vindicated in some way, but it, it all got kind of lost, but the lawyers represent the rule of law. Whether people like lawyers, they don't like lawyers, whatever. They represent uh, a outstanding independence in the society. They're willing to go into hostile courts and make arguments. That's what lawyers often do. Some of them, without any bravado or awards do it every day. The public defender in Alameda County does it every day. So um, this second, the second lawyer, Rosemary Nelson, 
got in her car, backed it down the driveway, and turned, and when she got to the stop sign, she put her foot on the brake, and uh, the car blew up, and she was, she was dead. Her daughter, who was in school, very close to the intersection, heard the sound of the bomb. The realities of death in Northern Ireland during the 25 years, I don't think has really been told in a way that I saw at least. Um, so that's, that was Northern Ireland. And uh, I got the idea of starting a school for lawyers in Northern Ireland. And a lot of people helped put that together. And I went over, I've taught over there three times in Belfast. Uh, you know, American lawyers go breezing into a foreign country and start telling people how to try a case in their, in their court. I got a real kick out of it. It was fun. Met some wonderful people, wonderful lawyers, and it was good. Anyway, that was, that's Northern Ireland. And um, what became of the cases? The worst part and the most interesting part. As to Rosemary Nelson, there has never been an apprehension of uh, the people who arranged for the bomb and planted the bomb in her car. Uh, there was an apology, a kind of a half apology by the prime minister that they hadn't protected her. Well, you know, there are people in government sometimes that can phrase things in certain careful ways, but they never admitted that they participated in it. And I got pretty reliable evidence that the government played a part in the killing of Rosemary Nelson. As to um, Patrick Finucane, who was murdered in front of his family, um, there's been a lot of stop and start. Several years after I sent the names to uh, the authorities in England and Ireland, I, I told them I have the names, I'd be glad to give them to you. Um, the, uh, uh, they finally indicted one of the people for murder, Patrick Finucane. It was one of the two names. The second person has never been prosecuted. Uh, and of course, the witness that, that I talked, I interviewed him, that witness is, is dead. So it, it doesn't look as though uh, there'll be a complete investigation. There was a lot of foot dragging over years of time. Patrick Finucane was killed in 89, and uh, Rosemary Nelson was killed in the late 90s. So uh, officials can be corrupt in a deadly way, and that's, that's the way I came, I came away out of Northern Ireland. I remember walking around the uh, airport in England, and I was just in a kind of state of shock and disbelief that authorities could could go that far, but they did. And were you, were you ever afraid for yourself or for your life? You know, it's an interesting. You'd think so, wouldn't you? Uh, there's uh, 
There's an Irish thing which is not very elegant, uh, which I think of sometimes, which is the hell with this. The hell with this. And uh, I was angry more than afraid. I mean, I, I went into places that were somewhat dangerous. I think we were followed. It sounds paranoid, but I think we were followed at one point. I just was not going to leave this. I mean, I just wanted to do whatever I could. In fact, we didn't we didn't do that much, but we did some. And um, there's a thing in lawyers very often, especially trial lawyers, they're just going to do it. You know, we've just had a series of important trials, front page, top of the news, six or seven shootings of people by police, uh, a question of uh, uh, securities fraud down in Santa Clara County, the woman who is charged with fraud. We've had, we've had all those things. Every one of those cases, some of the people are despised, some of the clients, there's a, a lawyer. And the lawyer has to say, I'm just going to do this, that's all. I'm just going to do it. And if people don't like it, then they don't like it. Um, but I admire those, those lawyers who do that, and there's a lot of them, as I say, a great many. What was the toughest case that you ever tried? The toughest case was a young man who uh, went to Afghanistan and he was uh, in uh, Afghanistan uh, fighting for the Taliban before 9-11. That is the key point of the case, before 9-11. I could bore you with all the evidence that there was that the U.S. government was cooperating with the Taliban government at the time that my client went there. And um, there was talk of the death penalty. He was indicted. He was in court in Northern Virginia. Every public official, all the high public officials, the President of the United States, the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, um, people in the Cabinet, the Attorney General of the United States, both senators in California accused him of treason. And uh, I represented him. And we were able to get a reduced sentence uh, in the worst atmosphere that I've encountered in a case. And in that case, there was danger. There were, at one point, there were riflemen on the roof of the courthouse in Virginia uh, for protection of everybody. Uh, we had bodyguards, and it was all quite exotic, uh, you know. And even even then, uh, you know, you get a certain energy out of those things. Um, and if you're a trial lawyer, that's, those are the kind of cases you want. You want those kind of cases. So uh, that, was, that was the toughest, most difficult uh, case. What aspects were, I mean, obviously the fear was there, but what other aspects of that case were difficult? He was, he was uh, 
fighting with the Taliban at the time of 9-11. And uh, he was captured uh, by a warlord. And he was being held. Uh, this is now after 9-11. And um, he was very lucky to survive. He was in a basement terrible facts, um, and finally he survived. But the most difficult part of it was the way the country reacted. And I'm an amateur psychologist. Trial lawyers have to be. Nothing, nothing serious, although I did have a case involving Sigmund Freud, um, and, and that was another for another day maybe. But you have to understand a couple of things when you're a trial lawyer. One is hysteria. You have to understand what what takes over people. And this, the, people who otherwise are very deliberate, high government officials, the highest government officials, were in a state similar to political hysteria. And they wanted him basically... I don't want to overstate it, but they wanted him hurt. And that was the toughest part of it. We had no friends in that case. There were no... Uh, he, he had converted to Islam. But there were no friendly Islamists in the courtroom. Uh, there was nobody. And in those cases, I've had several that were like that, but it becomes hopeless to try to explain the case to anybody. You go to a cocktail party and they say, oh, that's, uh, you know, that, oh, that's terrible what, uh, what, what he did, you know, and they have a vague idea. and you, you can't convince them of anything. It's useless to try. So the worst part of it was we were absolutely alone in that case. And that's, in some ways, that's where a trial lawyer should be, that the client has, other than the family, the client has only the lawyer. Wow. That's, I mean, that's powerful, powerful. And I mean, you've gone up against the government a lot, it seems like in the past. Yeah. Um, and one, one politician called you that San Francisco lawyer. And that yeah. was not a, that was not a positive thing. No. <laughs> well, I took it as a compliment, but he didn't mean it that way. And and who was that? That was the vice president of the United States, Dan Quayle. <laughs> and, and why did he call you that? Because he couldn't pronounce Brosnahan. Um, I, I it. It's uh, it's not that hard a name to pronounce, really. But uh, he, he, you know, he was uh, that San Francisco lawyer, you know, and uh, he didn't know anything about it. Uh, he 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 really didn't know anything about it. I, I have devised a difference between courtroom truth and political truth. Courtroom truth is pretty reliable. The, the witnesses on the stand, examined, cross-examined. Courtroom truth is, is pretty reliable. Political truth, the idea is to get your person elected. Political truth is different. Let's put it. Let's be kind and say political truth is is different. That, that's yes. I, I would say that's a, that's uh, that's beyond kind. Loyalty actually is is a, the dominant 
uh, importance. You have to be loyal. We see that now with the past president of the United States. The people ha must be loyal to him, no matter what the facts might be. They have to be loyal to him, otherwise he'll call them a name. If, if somebody would only get him into a courtroom, but I, I digress. No, well, the, I, I want to come back to that because you, I mean, you were involved in one of the cases that, I mean, could be considered on par with what we're seeing now with the January 6th committee, right? With Casper Weinberger and the Rand-Contra yeah. cases. Tell me about that. Yeah. How did you get involved? Let, let, you know, and for those that might be a little historically impaired, Let's, let's remind them what the case was about. Yeah, well, uh, Ronald Reagan uh, was, uh, in 1986, Iran had captured another group of um, uh, Americans and was holding them. And I have to say right away that they could have been terribly hurt, they could have been tortured, they could have been killed. And Reagan decided that he would go along with the Iranian demands, which were to send him, send them missiles. That's in violation of American law. Iran is basically a terrorist country in a lot of ways, which is another subject. Uh, the people around him, close to him, tried to talk him out of it, but then he did it. And it went along for a while until 1986 and suddenly the story broke. And instead of taking the Secretary of State's advice and just going out there and saying, I did it, here's why I did it, you know, I shouldn't have done it, but I did it, they decided to have a cover-up. Cover-ups have become a little more frequent in my lifetime. And um, the Iranians received missiles, a number of them, tow missiles, which they could use against Israel, for example, a, a, an ally of America. It was wrong, it was just wrong. But Reagan, in very specific language, said, I didn't do it, basically. I didn't do it. And that meant that the people around him had to go along with that. And Caspar Weinberger was the Secretary of Defense, who, by the way, had control over missiles. And FBI agents went to his office and said, uh, do you uh, do you keep notes? We heard that you keep a lot of notes, which was true. Weinberger kept notes because he was going to write his biography at some point. And he said, no, I don't. So the FBI agents left. Weinberger went over to where he kept his notes and wrote down, FBI agents in today, I told them I don't keep notes. This is Washington, D.C. Sorry, folks, but, uh, you know, D.C., approach it with some skepticism when you are listening to all these statements by people back there. Well, so, is, is it rule number one of lying to the FBI agent and don't record that you lied to the FBI agent? Yeah, uh, yeah, uh, that would be... 
<laughs> He's a lawyer. He, he was Secretary of Defense, but he was an active lawyer in San Francisco. Well, very well-respected lawyer. But his loyalty to Reagan superseded what he had to do as a matter of lawful conduct. Uh, and that's where, that's where I kind of first got the idea. Loyalty in politics is everything. Truth is eh, not so much. Then he testified before Congress. I interviewed all those senators who were sitting there in the chamber of a joint committee, House and Senate, when Weinberger told them that uh, he basically thought, to keep it simple, he basically thought that uh, another department had decided to send the missiles, because there was no question that missiles were sent. That, that was the story that broke. But he was, he was saying that Reagan didn't do it. That's perjury. And what gets me is, having tried a lot of cases and been in court a lot over the years, I don't know how many people I've seen in federal court charged with perjury. It's a false statement to a government person, a government agent. That's perjury. It's a crime. It's, it, it doesn't matter that you're Secretary of State. As a matter of fact, if it matters, you, you almost ought to be held to a higher standard. Because you, and if you're a lawyer, you know better. Well, in, uh, at Christmas time, just about this time of the year, we're recording this just before Christmas of, uh, of 2021. I'm sitting in my kitchen. I had come home uh, and... Um, we're getting ready for Christmas, and it felt good. I was relaxing from all the pressure of Washington, D.C., and came over TV. Today, President Bush, because it was some years later, President Bush, who had been defeated, has pardoned Casper Weinberger and five others in the Iran-Contra matter. That was a successful cover-up. Any future president who's looking for a playbook on how to cover up the truth from Americans sees the way to go. And we've had some recent examples where there were discussions of pardons and, and all that. So that, that was the story. Um, uh, I, I got to the heart of the government back there. I, I interviewed the head of national security uh, I was. Uh, I got my top secret clearance. In fact, it was kind of an aside there. This very stern man was giving me my national security, you know, and giving me a lecture. I'll be killed. You know, they'll kill. You know, whatever. It, it's, you know, it's just it's too horrible to describe what would happen to me if I ever leaked any of this stuff. You know, and finally I looked at him and I said. Well, I appreciate you giving me a national security clearance. I do respect it, and I will follow the rules. But, you know, I'm a little surprised. I live in Berkeley, California, you know, and um, we're kind of progressive out there and liberal. But I do appreciate it. Thanks very much. I got up and left. Um, so that was, that was Weinberger. I got a view of the government that was not what I hoped for when I was in law school 
was disappointing. And what did you think when you, I mean, when it was all over and said and done and the outcome based on what you saw should have been obviously a lot worse for the, for the people involved. And then, you know, you, you see this pardon. What did you think of the future of law, the future of the country at that point? Well, I, I have a, a point of view having talked to an awful lot of Americans all over the country, jurors, uh, witnesses, uh, people. I have a lot of faith, even now, my wife and I debate this a little bit, uh, about Americans. I think Americans sometimes are a little slow to pick up on things I wish they would see earlier. For example, we divide them and us, and there's a growing effort to get away from that because there is no us. My daughter said this to me the other day, you know, there's no them and there's no us. And that's, that's really true. And what does happen sometimes, like the know-nothings in the 1850s who were anti-Irish, terrible uh, slurs on the, the poor Irish who came over on the boats. But they didn't last. Now that may be overly optimistic, but I think that we'll come back uh, to a position where democracy is important. Now, for example, not that my opinion on this is particularly valid, but there are a lot of people that don't want to take the vaccines. And they use the word liberty. And that's interesting. Uh, liberty needs to be for everybody. And you have to kind of think about the morality of it all, I think. Uh, but I, th I think the fact that liberty is seen by people who I wish would get vaccinated, frankly, uh, is a healthy thing. I've thought for a long time that lawyers will disagree and resist any sentence that starts with the word mandatory. It's just in the DNA of lawyers that we don't want to be told things. And somewhere in all of this mess that we have right now, the virus, terrible problem, is the word liberty. And I think Americans will more and more respect the essential elements of democracy. So long-winded answer that we're going to be okay. I love it. You know, it's, it's, it, it, cause it is scary. It is scary. I mean, from a non lawyer standpoint, you see the, the rules of law being bent and, yeah. uh, you know, and, and yeah. I'm sure you, you're seeing this and, and like when you said, it's a playbook, it seems like when you're telling that story, it's very similar to everything that's going on right now, isn't it? Well, I think we're in danger now. I, I do. I think, uh, these, uh, if I may say so, the hooligans who, uh, uh, you know, are white racists. I'm, I'm a white Irish American, so I guess I get to say that. Uh, they will be defeated. They will be indicted if they do something violent. 
They will tur they'll be in prison. There's one uh, last week uh, will serve five years. And that's the law. That's the rule of law. And uh, that's, that's important. What hasn't happened is that some of the higher-ups, I don't want to mention names. This isn't a political blog particularly. Uh, some of the higher-ups have not been brought into court. Some of the people who are responsible. And that's a frustration for me. I don't understand why the legal process has not brought some of those higher-ups to account. That's a little bit like Weinberger. And there is a celebrity thing that I indulge in, you know, the you see celebrities, you want to hear them, and all this kind of stuff. But there's celebrity stuff that immunizes people in government sometimes when they should not be immunized. And there's more than one in the United States Senate right now that I could make a case against as a former prosecutor. I won't mention any names, but I could get them indicted and I could get them convicted. And that absence is probably our biggest problem, but we'll see what, we'll see what happens next year. Yes, we will see. And, you know, when you look at this, do you, I mean, do you follow like the January 6th hearings closely? Yeah, well, yes, I do. I, I get, um, I get a number of newspapers. I, I get, uh, get some on the East Coast and I get the newspapers out here and I read them as though, you know, I'm about to go to trial on one of these cases, you know, this is, this stuff. you get, it's a habit. I, uh, years ago, uh, a, uh, Another lawyer told me, you have to always read the paper before you get in the office because the client may ask you a question about something that's in the paper. So I started in, uh, you know, the 1960s reading the newspaper. And, uh, yeah, I, I follow it. And um, uh, the lawyers, you know, there's 288,000 lawyers that's wrong. I think it's 188,000 lawyers. Yeah, no, in California. In California, okay. Yeah, and uh, if you take the rule of law away, you might as well take the bone away from the most ferocious dog that you can find. Um, there will be lawyers, you can see them right now. They're in the paper this morning. They're objecting, they're complaining, they're suing, they're, they're doing what lawyers do. And if, if there's any one group that'll save us, and I think we will be saved, thank you very much, it's the lawyers. I'm not embarrassed, I do have this in, in the book, uh, in my memoir, but um, I'm not embarrassed to to praise lawyers because I spent my whole life with them. I've seen what they do. I know what they do. And um, they, it, they take hard cases. They should. 
So, and speaking of your memoir, it's tentatively titled. What is it tentatively titled? That San Francisco lawyer. I thought, uh, you know, it's a, it's a sort of bizarre distinction that uh, you know. Gee, uh, you know, the vice president, <laughs> the vice president called me that San Francisco lawyer. Well, when I got to San Francisco a long time ago, there were some fantastic lawyers, and I I describe them in the book too. And uh, there was uh, Joe Aliota, who was an antitrust lawyer, and he was fighting all the corporations. And and uh, there was Melvin Belli in his early days, and he was trying to get good verdicts for his clients. And th these were, in my eyes at that time, they were giants in the law, giants, uh, wonderful, in incredible, courageous people. And um, so I, I, I describe some of them in the book. I love it. And that comes out in a little bit of time. So we've got a little bit of time before it comes out if you're watching this fresh, this podcast fresh. But Jim, I'd like to have you back on once that comes out so we can help promote it. And, and I'd be delighted. Yeah. And, uh, I have more stories. <laughs> I was going to say, I bet you you have a few more stories after 60 years. <laughs> I mean, these were, oh, yes. any one of these is a is a TV series. And we, we went over four amazing ones in, in the course of 30 some odd minutes. Um, but Jim, this is, I, I just, uh, can I add one thing? I just, I just wanted to try to get the excitement of courtrooms and you talked about nervousness at the beginning, but it's the excitement of being in a court with a important case. As, as long as it's important to the client, that's what matters. It may not be in the newspapers or anything, but that's, uh, I was trying to put that in the book. Thanks. I, I'm sure it's going to be amazing. Can't wait to read it. I mean, just in this 30 minutes was riveting. I can't imagine what a full book is going to be like. Uh, but Jim, thank you so much for being on True Law Stories. Thank you for having me. It's uh, It's been fun. And thank you all for uh, watching Jim and listening to these amazing stories. Make sure to pick up his book, uh, tentatively titled, that San Francisco lawyer, make sure to follow him and, and let him know that you saw him here. But, and thank you for listening to True Law Stories. This has been Ian Garlic. True Law Stories has been brought to you by videocasestory.com. Testimonials stink. No one wants to watch a testimonial or read a case study. You need video case stories for your business. Go to videocasestory.com to learn more.